6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Ecclesiastes, chapters 7 and 8. All things have I seen in the days of my vanity. There's a just man that perisheth in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man that prolongeth his life in his wickedness. That's disturbing. That's that's one of the basic dilemmas in life, is that uh, why do the righteous suffer, and why do the wicked prosper? The good die young, and the wicked seem to keep going. It's interesting that uh, God did promise Israel to bless Israel in the land if they obeyed His laws, but He he hasn't given those promises today under the New Covenant. Francis Bacon pointed this out. Prosperity is the blessing of the Old Testament. Adversity is the blessing of the New. And that sounds strange, but you can carry that through. Take take a look at it. And uh, it's interesting, the Lord's opening words in the Sermon on the Mount were not, you know, blessed are the rich in substance. No, no. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And so on. Another aspect of this is the wicked appear to prosper only if you take the short view of things. It's been said some time ago, and I think it's very provocative, you can prove anything if your scope is narrow enough. If you take the long view, that punctures this issue of the wicked prospering. And that was the lesson that Asaph recorded in Psalm 73, something that Paul reinforces in Romans 8 and 2 Corinthians 4. Matthew 6, they have their reward, that's all they'll ever get kind of thing. And uh, they may gain the whole world, but they lose their own souls. You all know those verses. We don't have to beat that to death. Let's go on to verse 16. Be not righteous over much, neither make thyself over wise. Why shouldest thou destroy thyself? Be not over much wicked, be, neither be thou foolish. Why shouldest thou die before your time? Uh, verses 16, 17, 18 have been misunderstood by a lot that say that Solomon was simply teaching moderation in everyday life. Don't be too righteous, don't be too great a sinner. Play it safe. That's not what he's saying at all. See, in the Hebrew text, the verbs, especially in verse 16, carry the idea of reflexive action. See, what he's really saying, don't be, don't claim to be righteous and don't claim to be wise. In other words, what he's warning them against is self-righteousness and pride that comes when we think we've arrived spiritually and as if we know it all. And he will make clear at verse 20, forthcoming, that there are no righteous people. So he can't be referring to true righteousness. He's really talking about self-righteousness or claimed righteousness. And he's condemning self-righteousness of the hypocrite, the false wisdom of the proud. And uh, he warned that these sins lead to destruction and death. And uh, verse 18 It is good that thou shouldest take hold of this. Yea, and from this withdraw not thine hand, for he that feareth God shall come forth of them all. Notice here, this is one of these places where you realize that Solomon, contrary to the way he starts this thing, isn't limiting himself to this life. He's he's recognizing it gets its real perspective out from under the sun and beyond the point of death. And this is one of the places that you realize his scope is larger than it would seem on on the face of things. So the fear of the Lord is a beginning of wisdom, Solomon tells us in Proverbs 9, verse 10. Very key verse. 
Verse 19, wisdom strengthened the wise more than ten men which are in the city. <laughs> and uh, the wise person, of course, doesn't fear anybody, because he, if he fears the Lord, he has no reason to fear anything else. And that's also hammered in Psalm 112. He walks with the Lord, and thus he has the adequacy to meet anything that comes. All the changes, all the challenges of life, including war, including major catastrophes. Verse 20, For there is not a just man on the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Here's Solomon summarizing Romans 3. There is none righteous that doeth good and sinneth not. Now Romans 6, by the way, just to emphasize this, tells us that sin need not reign in our lives if we're in Christ. That doesn't mean we're sinless, but sin does not need to have control over your life if you're in Christ. Romans 6, it ain't going to rain no more. See, if we walk in the fear of God and we follow His wisdom, we'll be able to detect and defeat the wicked one when he comes to tempt us. That's really that's the thought that's even buried in here. Wisdom, the way Solomon's taking it, will guide us in our walk. Verse 21, Also take no heed unto all words that are spoken, lest thou hear thy servant curse thee. Strange way of expressing it, perhaps. For oftentimes, he says, also thine own heart knoweth that thou thyself likewise has cursed others. Another problem we all have that sort of echoes from all this is uh, this idea of uh, being concerned about what people say about us. So your servant curses really carries that, that thought. And uh, one of the things, if I can just uh, de- depart here for a minute, one of the things that's a hot button with me, and so I'll use this as an excuse to depart from the, the, the main outline, is to talk about this thing about talking about others. And a question I often ask a group, what is the most painful sin? We can all list sins, but what sin causes has probably caused more pain in the history of man than any of the other sins? And I'm going to suggest to you that the answer to that question is probably gossip. Gossip has probably caused more hidden pain. And of course it's a violation of thou shalt not bear false witness, but there are more subtle forms of gossip. Uh, and that, that account for more personal pain and suffering than we probably have any conception of. It's a form of betrayal. And uh, it's probably hurtful beyond our reckoning. Behind the flurry of our daily routines, the venom does its silent work. Undermining confidences, betraying relationships, spreading unseen injustices, and invisibly promoting misunderstandings and resentment and distrust. And the scripture has a lot to say about it. I won't go through it all. This, my little article on this will be appended to the notes that accompany the tape. You can go through a little study there. And this is sensitive to me because we went through, my wife and I went through a deep dark valley about 10 years ago. Bankruptcy, earthquakes, relocating from our family roots. And, but the most pain of that whole experience wasn't the loss of the money or the bankruptcy and all that. The trauma of those difficult years really came from the libel and the slander that was promoted or at least tolerated by, quote, many of our Christian, close quote, friends. Um, and I'm sure many of you probably have similar experiences that uh, people without checking, accepting negative or derogatory innuendos uh, whispered behind people's backs. I have to add, in, in contrast to that, we received indescribable encouragement from a number of uh, new sources and new friends and, and uh, notable personalities that, and on the internet and whatever, uh, on these various uh, controversies that uh, 
rebutted the aspersions against us without even needing to check. That was incredible. I have to tell you one anecdote that always echoes in my mind because it echoes many of us. There was a day when I was on Walter Martin's board, and uh, Walter Martin was a beloved friend. But I remember before one of the board meetings in the, in the sort of the break, he came up to me and said, uh, do you know what Chuck Smith said last Sunday? Because he used to check on Sunday night services over at Calvary. And I stopped him at the comma, and I said, uh, gee, Walter, what was Chuck's reaction when you shared that with him? And uh, he sort of stopped and said, I mean, I know you're too scriptural to be sharing that with me without having checked with, you know, reviewed it with him first. What was his reaction? Well, I knew, yeah. <laughs> he stopped, he got that impish grin on his face, and, uh, you know, I knew I had him. I knew I had, so I, and that's rare for Walter, because Walter really was a fabulous guy, but I caught him, so I just turned the knife in. And of course, several of the board was sitting there chuckling, and Walter just backed off and looked at me and says, I'm gonna have trouble with you, aren't I? <laughs> but, uh, he had a twinkle. He, he, he was, he was a great guy. And of course, that, that's so rare that I, I, I love that anecdote. But, um, it uh, was interesting because I never let him go on to tell me what he was anxious to share. His faux pas, apparently, that Chuck may have said that Sunday night. So those are precious years, and uh, it was unusual to catch Walter in that kind of a misstep, and he, uh, uh, we miss him. He died back in 89, fabulous guy, close friend. But as long as I'm in, in anecdotes, I have to tell you about the three pastors that were sharing their private, intimate situation that get together and pray and so forth. And the first pastor frankly confessed to his two uh, confidants that he really has a problem with lust. He finds himself thinking all kinds of inappropriate thoughts at occasions and so he asks for prayer. And The second pastor, hearing the candor there, says, well, I have to ask you then, too, to help me with my problem. I have a problem with uh, 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 my my stewardship of money. You know, I skim money money here and there, and I take, short, cut, take shortcuts, and I'm guilty of a number of indiscretions that, regarding this weakness. I, I ask your prayer. The third pastor said, gee, I sure appreciate your candor. I confess that uh, my problem is gossip, and I can hardly wait to get out of here. <laughs> but you know how Christians sometimes say, I don't want to gossip. However, in order that you can pray for so-and-so more specifically, let me tell you the latest, you know, and uh, so forth. See, what is true friendship? A, real, a true friendship doesn't require explanations. It uh, gives us assurance of the benefit of the doubt without even asking. And that's one who is loyal and shuns any form of betrayal. And, of course, I know none of you are guilty of that sort of thing. I'm just mentioning this so that you can counsel your needy friends. Anyway, um, oftentimes I also my own heart knoweth that thou thyself likewise hast cursed others. That All this I have proved by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which is far off and exceeding deep, who can find it out? And he goes on, I applied mine heart to know and to search and to seek out wisdom and the reason of things and to know the wickedness of folly, even of foolishness and madness. And I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart it snares and nets in her hands and as bands. Whoso pleaseth God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be taken by her. Part of the thought before we got to this last verse is the whole inability to grasp the meaning of life and what God is really doing in this world. And see, even Solomon, with all his God-given wisdom, uh, couldn't understand all that exists, how God manages it, what purposes he has in things. He searched for, you know, for the answers, couldn't find them. And he's going to talk about the woman here in verse 26, but I was reminded of this whole flavor of thing by the old Persian proverb. He who knows and knows not that he knows 
is asleep. Wake him. He who knows not and knows that he knows not is a student. Teach him. He who knows not and knows not that he knows not is a fool. Shun him. He who knows and knows that he knows is a wise. Follow him. Whole Persian proverb. Verse 26, the woman. You know, it's interesting. Talking, He's going to talk about the sinfulness of humanity in general. And he starts with a woman here, a prostitute apparently, who traps men and leads them to death. He talks a lot about that in the book of Proverbs, chapter 2, 5, 6, 7. Probably because Solomon himself was snared by many foreign women who enticed him away from God, snared him with false gods, led to his apostasy. Someone has said women are the measure of weakness in a man. And apparently it was certainly true of Solomon. He says, Behold, this I have found, saith the preacher, counting one by one to find out the account, which yet my soul seeketh, but I find not. One man among a thousand have I found, but a woman among all these have I not found. <laughs> now, when he says uh, counting, by the way, it's, the closer word is reckoning, not just counting, but weighing one thing after another and so forth. What he's really concluding here is that the whole human race is bound by sin. He says, one man in a thousand was wise, but not one woman. That's in effect what he's saying here. But the number of a thousand is kind of significant. How many wives did he have? 700. How many concubines? 300. Thousand total. You're right in a sense. Okay. And don't think that Solomon rated women less intelligent men, because that's not the case. He spoke highly of women in Proverbs 12, 14, 18, 19, 31, and so on. Also in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And certainly in the Song of Solomon. In fact, in the book of Proverbs, he even pictures wisdom itself as a woman in chapter 8 and so on. In fact, chapter 9 also. But you should recognize that in Solomon's day, women had neither the freedom nor the status that they have today. It was unusual to find a woman to have learning at least equal to a man. So that's, that colors the way he's expressing himself here. And certainly the Scripture would suggest from Isaiah 3, verse 12 and elsewhere, that it was a judgment of God for women to rule. That's exactly the way Isaiah used the expression. At the same time, remember Miriam, remember Deborah? There were women that had great leadership responsibilities. But it was the exception to the cultural norm. And so anyway, verse 29... This only have I found that God hath made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. You see, Adam was created upright, but Adam disobeyed God and fell. And all, now all men are sinners who seek out clever, what he calls inventions here. So man has the ability to understand and harness the forces of God that God put into nature, but he doesn't always use this ability in constructive ways. Every time science makes a big step forward, it seems that we find there are problems that uh, emerge that we didn't even know we had. And you can make long lists of those examples. So really what Solomon has made his point here in this chapter is that, that the wisdom can make our lives better and clearer and stronger. We may not fully understand all this God is doing, but if we, have, we should have enough wisdom to do work for the good of others and uh, the glory of God. So let's go to chapter 8. Knock off another chapter here. Here he's going to talk about the problem of evil. It's very interesting, this whole problem of evil. You know, uh, when you, you, it's a problem that no thinking person can honestly avoid. But it's interesting, it's not unbelief that creates the problem, but faith. 
If there is no God, then we can hardly blame anyone but ourselves for the evil that's around. So the problem comes around to the extent that if there's a God, why is there all this evil? If we believe in a loving God and so forth, you've got to face the difficult question of why is there so much suffering in the world? Now, it's a, some people who ponder this come up with the view of being atheists or agnostics, but then they have a whole new problem. There's no God, then where, is, you know, where did all the good come from in this world? It's difficult that we're alone and so on. I won't get into that thing, you know, the current premise that we all came out of a rock, you know. Uh, so Solomon doesn't deny the existence of God or the reality of evil, nor does he limit the power of God. He's going to try to solve this problem by affirming the factors and seeing them in the proper perspective. We need to recognize that the major source of evil in this world is fallen man. Uh, both good and evil have helped create the problem of one kind or another. Solomon um, explored this problem by looking at three key areas of life. The first is authority. And uh, you know, if we begin with Nimrod uh, in Genesis 10, and we continue through the centuries, looking at Pharaoh, Sennacherib, Nebuchadnezzar, Darius, the Caesars, in fact, every petty dictator on the planet Earth uh, have oppressed people People have been oppressed by bad rulers all through man's history. In fact, Solomon himself was guilty of increasing the tax burden and so forth on his subjects in 1 Kings 4 and 12 and so forth, heavy yoke of taxation. Now, I should also keep in mind as we go through this, when you talk about a king in those days, uh, he held life or death in his hands, and he often used that capriciously. And we're going to see some of that, you know, Saul as an example and other things, but these were not elected officials, they weren't... Uh, in any way uh, uh, responsible to the people, in any true sense of the term. It's kind of interesting that even the ultimate dictator in the history of man will be a return, we believe, of Nimrod, the Assyrian, the final ruling planet Earth, as Isaiah 5 and Isaiah 10 and others uh, comment on. But let's go into chapter 8, verse 1. Who is the wise man who knoweth the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom maketh his face to shine, and the boldness of his face shall be changed. I counsel thee to keep the king's commandment and that, and that in regard of the oath of God. And be not hasty to go out of his sight. Stand not in the evil thing, for he doeth whatsoever pleaseth him. What he seems to be describing here is an officer in a royal court, a man who had to carry out the orders of a despotic ruler. And the officer had wisdom. He showed his face. But uh, what happens if the king commands a servant to do something evil, something that the servant really doesn't want to do? What does he do? He's, we're going to discover there's probably four possible approaches to that dilemma. His first basic thing, I counsel to keep the king's commandment that in regard to the oath of God. If you know, see, your first option would be disobedience. That's a big, probably a big mistake. He says his, his counsel is keep the king's commandment. Why? Well, first of all, you've got to be true to your oath of allegiance to the king and to God who is the source of all the authority. In any case, Romans 13 fits here. And to, to disobey would be breaking a promise to that king. So you got a problem there. We're going to suggest there's four possibilities. Disobedience, a desertion, defiance, or discernment. That's pretty much the way Solomon's going to, to, to deal with this in this chapter. Verse 3 says, Be ye not hasty to go out of his sight, stand not in an evil thing, for he, for he doeth whatsoever pleaseth him. Where the word of the king is, there is power. And who may say unto him, What doest thou? 
what he's really saying here, the king has power. You got the, there's the reality that his word is bound to prevail. If it's your word against his, he's going to win, you know, in, in effect. The king can do no wrong. There's no law that could find the king guilty in those days. And so he goes on, Whosoever keepeth the commandment shall feel no evil thing. The wise, the wise man's heart discerneth both time and judgment. Third, the officer should obey the orders so he can avoid punishment on the one hand, because he is disobedience could mean death. And Paul uses a similar argument in Romans 13. Where the word of the king is, there is power. And who may say unto him, what doest thou? Whoso keepeth the commandment shall feel no evil thing. A wise man's heart discerneth both time and judgment. Because to every purpose there is a time and a judgment. Therefore, the misery of man is great upon him. We get to this whole area of discernment. See, a wise servant can uh, uh, consider the time of things. And, and uh, often there is a an opportunity to let time go and to find the right procedure for the right time. An impulsive person may overreact, storms out of the room or what have you. The wise heart will know the proper time procedures, really what he's arguing. This is exemplified, for example, in Joseph. Remember when Joseph found out, when his, his brothers came to him the first time, he didn't let them know he was Joseph. He did a whole, through a whole procedure, part of which was to find out where their heart was, how were, what was their attitude towards their father, and so forth. And once he heard them confess their sins, then he knew it was the right time to identify who he really was. And that incredible scene and in Genesis 43 through 45, fabulous story. And his handling of this delicate situation is a masterpiece of wisdom, if in effect. Nehemiah was burdened because the walls of Jerusalem were, they didn't have the authority to rebuild them. But he wasn't sure the king would release the task, but he waited and watched and prayed, knowing that God would one day opened the way to him, and one day he did. He found the opportune time and got permission from his boss to go there and rebuild the, the city walls, which, of course, led to the whole rebuilding under Nehemiah. And uh, he knew how to discern the time. Daniel, even as a kid, when he was in Babylon, was a prisoner of war with his hostage, uh, with his three buddies. They played their cards in terms of not eating the Babylonian food and so forth in chapter 1. And... Uh, and you find the apostles used discernment, too, in Acts 4 and 5 and so forth. And they show respect to those in authority, even though the religious leaders had prejudiced uh, and acted illegally, and they were willing to suffer for their faith, and they had let, they were cool. They were cool. Verse 7, For he knoweth not that which shall be, for who can tell him when it shall be? There is no man that hath the power over the Spirit to retain the Spirit, neither hath he the power in the day of death. There is no discharge in that war, neither shall wickedness deliver those that are given to it. One thing sure, that the day will come that wickedness will be judged. Even kings won't escape. And by the way, something else you understand, that no one can control the wind or prevent the day of the... The word wind and spirit is the same word in the Hebrew, ruach, it's the same word. And nobody can get discharged when the war going on is sort of the flavor of this. And no one can stop the, you know, the inexorable working of God's law. What they reap, what they sow, they'll reap and so forth. Well, I mentioned uh, another thing. Uh, one of his views in this whole series was desertion and uh, can't de- or in defiance, and that was back in chapter three. Don't stand up for a bad cause, he said, and uh, don't you know be careful when you get into plots against the crown. Does that raise a whole another question for discussion? Is this whole issue of civil di- disobedience? Uh, is it uh, is there room for civil disobedience to the life of the believer? Uh, do law-abiding citizens have the, the right to resist authority when they feel the law is not just? And uh, Thomas Jefferson wrote that uh, resistance to tyrants is obedience to God. Was he right? That's a great discussion point for you. 
Most believers will agree with Peter. We ought to obey God rather than men in Acts 5.29. Christian prisoners and martyrs throughout the ages have testified of their courage and of conscience and the importance of standing up for what's right. But uh, it's, a, it's a heavy issue. Well, let's move on to verse 9 so we can make it. I think we're going to make it. All this have I seen and applied my heart unto every work that is done unto the Son. There is a time wherein one man ruleth over another to his own hurt. And so I saw the wicked buried who had come and gone from the place of the holy, and they were forgotten in the city where they had so done. This also is vanity. We have by now, by this verse, we've, we've seen the options of disobeying, running away, defying, and even fighting back. But he's arguing that we need to exercise discernment. And it's not easy to be a consistent Christian in a complicated, evil world. But we can ask for the wisdom of God and receive it by faith, according to James 1 and 3 and so on. In verse 10, he seems to be reporting on a funeral that he attended. The deceased man was one that had frequented the temple, that is, the place of the holy. He received much praise from the people, but he, had not, he hadn't lived a godly life. Yet he was given a magnificent funeral with an eloquent eulogy, and the truly godly people of the city were apparently ignored and forgotten. And whenever I think of this, I'm reminded of a, a story of a, I've forgotten the name of the missionary and his wife that were returning from, I think, 40 years of service in Africa on a, sh- a ship about the time of Teddy Roosevelt. It happened to be on that ship when Teddy Roosevelt was coming back from a safari in Africa. And when the ship landed in New York, there were bands and press because Teddy Roosevelt came and the, sh- you know, the things he, he, his hunt, his safari was big successful. Big crowds because the president came back. And uh, as they finally, the crowd dissipated, the missionary and his wife got off the ship. And of course, there's nobody there to meet them. And the husband, the missionary, was really depressed. Because uh, here you have the superficial issue of Teddy Roosevelt returning and all this hoobla. And here, 40 years of service to the Lord and no one to meet him. His wife turned to him and says, that's okay, we're not home yet. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your prayerful continued support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.